0: This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. This lecture by Professor Silvio Ferrari of State University of Milan under the rubric The Christian Roots of the Secular State is actually the first lecture in a series with the name Beyond Secular religious Division, the Role of Religion in the Public Sphere in Polarized europe and i will now hand over the word to johanna Gustafsson lundberg who will not only set the tone for the series but most importantly for the lecture of silvio ferrari the christian roots of the secular state a lecture in ethics and together here with Richard Bobrovic who's a PhD student in practical theology uh, we have organized this um, series actually of lectures with a title Beyond Secular and Religious Division the Role of Religion in the in the Public Sphere in Polarized Europe and today we're going to listen to the first lecture in this series it's a pleasure and uh, wonderful to have Professor Silvio Ferrari here from University of Milan. And before we give the word and the floor to you, Richard will introduce you in yes. a couple of words. So Professor uh, Ferrari is one of the most renowned experts in law and religion, and uh, uh, he is currently uh, uh, Professor Emeritus uh, in Law and Religion at the University of Milan and also at the University of Lugano in switzerland and uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce professor ferrari and this lecture the christian rules of the secular state and i must say personally i am very happy to to host professor ferrari because his article on the uh, bias in the european court of human rights was actually the beginning of the idea for my phd project so i'm very happy to host (laughs) you here today So, enjoy the lecture, and uh, after the lecture, we want to invite you for a reception in the kitchen upstairs. Fourth floor. Yes. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for this invitation. Um, I have uh, spoken uh, about this topic a few times before, and um, I have always been, sharply criticised, so uh, this is another time I tried this topic and see um, how uh, how it uh, uh, will go. um, The content of this uh, presentation has been suggested to me by the observation of the Gulf that divides the two shores of the Mediterranean in relation to the secular state. While in Europe, also in different forms, the secular state is the dominant political model, Uh, secular states are much much less widespread uh, in the Middle East and um, in uh, North Africa. And this fact led me to wonder whether the different fortunes of uh, the secular state in the Mediterranean area uh, depend, at least in part, on the different conceptions of uh, divine natural law that developed in the theological and legal traditions of Judaism, Christianity, and uh, Islam. Um, Before starting my presentation, I need to make two preliminary uh, remarks. Uh, First, I shall limit myself uh, to Sunni Islam, uh, Orthodox Judaism, and uh, uh, Roman Catholic Christianity. I shall not deal with uh, uh, the other currents of uh, uh, these uh, three uh, religions. Second, uh, I'd like to stress uh, um, that my intention is uh, purely descriptive. Uh, I wanted to explain uh, why uh, the Christian legal tradition, and particularly the Roman Catholic one, paved the way to the secular state, and uh, why the Islamic and the Jewish Uh, legal and theological traditions did not provide an equally congenial habitat for this type of state. Um, However, I am in no way implying that one tradition is better than uh, the other, nor that the secular state is preferable to other uh, political models. This may be my personal conviction, but it is not the subject of this presentation. Now, a um, secular state is an expression um, that can have many different meanings, and in this presentation, I make use of it to indicate a state that grants its citizens the same civil and political rights independently from the religion they profess or do not profess. This, in my opinion, is at the core of a secular state. Uh, of course, I am aware that this definition needs to be integrated with historical and sociological perspectives, and that there are different types of a secular state. Uh, however, From a legal point of uh, view, the uh, equal enjoyment of civil and political rights uh, provide uh, a a basis to distinguish uh, the countries where citizens uh, are granted uh, some basic rights irrespective of the religion they profess from the countries where citizens' rights are regulated according to their religious affiliation. Um, Let me make an example to explain what uh, I mean. In all European countries, two individuals professing different religions have no problem in getting married. They can perform a civil marriage, that is a marriage uh, where the religious affiliation of the spouses is completely irrelevant. The same cannot happen in many countries on the southern and eastern side of the Mediterranean, where the civil marriage does not exist, and the regulation of marriage is largely um, attributed to the legal provisions of the different religious communities. In these countries, when the religious law forbids the marriage with a person of different faith, it is impossible to celebrate a valid marriage, and unless one of the spouses is ready to adopt the religion of the other, the only option left is the celebration of the marriage abroad, and its recognition, when possible, in the spouse's country. Uh, similar uh, rules apply to uh, the regulation of divorce, inheritance, and other sections of family law. In my view, these states are not secular states, because of the legal status of their citizens depends on the religion they profess, at least in part. Uh, So my my question is, uh, why uh, is it so? Why uh, is, uh, is there this difference between the two sides of the Mediterranean? Why the secular state seems to fare much better in uh, Europe, then in the Middle East uh, and in uh, the Northern African countries. Um, Obviously, uh, there is no single answer to this uh, question. I shall try to provide a single piece of a wider mosaic and the answer is the wider uh, mosaic. However, I shall uh, do this uh, focusing um, on the notion of uh, natural uh, law. Uh, many religions have uh, elaborated uh, a notion of natural law, but always in a slightly different way. I argue that the particular conception that of natural law uh, that prevailed in Europe and later in the West, based on its Aristotelian and Thomistic presuppositions, facilitated the formation of the secular state more than the parallel conceptions that developed in the Islamic countries and within the Jewish communities. Um, In in different words, my point is uh, that all historical conditions being equal, a secular state was was more likely to take shape in countries with a Christian religious background because of their legal tradition is more deeply influenced by a concept of natural law based on divine natural law. And to make my point, I need to start with a short explanation of the meaning of God's law in the legal traditions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The legal systems of these three religions have have in common the fact of deriving their legitimacy from divine will. They conceive uh, themselves as uh, systems of law based on rules that uh, were were laid down by God himself. And uh, God's uh, law occupies a very central place in each of these legal systems. The validity of all the human legal provisions contained in each of them depends on their conformity, or at least non-opposition, to the rules of divine law that constitute their foundation, Uh, that is, Uh, The validity depends on the will of God and not on the will of man, as is normal in all legal systems with a non-religious foundation. Uh, The main element of affinity between the legal systems of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam is that God's law is known by man through revelation. It is, in whole or in part, a revealed law, that is, the law is made known through the initiative of God, without whose intervention man would not have been able to learn the content of divine law. However, there is a significant uh, difference. While for the legal systems of the Christian churches, not all the divine law is revealed law, for the Islamic and, uh, in different form, the Jewish legal systems, divine law and revealed law tend to coincide. Uh, The importance of this difference, uh, which uh, could seem uh, minor, is uh, great, and therefore it is appropriate to address it in more details. And I shall do this um, uh, focusing on a specific point, the legal status of the other in each religious tradition. Every uh, religious tradition must face the problem of the other, that is, the person who does not share the fundamental tenets and practices of that religion. However, the way in which the problem of the other is addressed is not the same in all religions. In the Roman um, Catholic legal tradition, the main instrument for taking this problem um, has been the notion of divine natural law. And the clearest explanation of the divine natural law theory dates back to Thomas Aquinas, who has the merit of having drawn with great lucidity the distinction between divine revealed law and divine natural law. The first divine revealed law is given by God through revelation and cannot be known outside of it. That is, cannot be known cannot be learned by man uh, only through reason. The second is also given by God, but through creation. Divine natural law is inscribed in the conscience of every human being as he or she is a person created in the image and likeness of god moreover second distinction divine natural law can be known also imperfectly through the proper use of the faculty of the rational faculties which every human being has. Both laws are immutable, binding, and superior to human law, but divine revealed law rules over the lives of the faithful, that is, the persons, the individuals who have been baptized, while the divine natural law governs the lives of uh, all men. (coughs) Now, uh, an exam of all the discussions uh, of these ideas exceeds uh, the boundaries of uh, my presentation. And so I shall limit (coughs) myself uh, to just one remark concerning the role that divine natural law as played in the Catholic and, to a certain extent, Christian thought. The idea that at the time of creation, God gives every human person the ability to distinguish right from wrong through the correct use of reason has made it possible to establish an element of commonality among people of different religions and also of no religion. In this perspective, the other is not a lawless person or a person who has a law which is totally different from mine. On the contrary, he or she is able to perceive what is right and what is wrong, even if without the aid of revelation and divine grace, he or she may not be able to live up to this perception. But this situation is common to every human being. Sure, the conception of the universality of divine natural law did not prevent discrimination and also persecutions against the others. However, the doctrine paved the way to the idea that there is an area of rights and obligations that are shared, that is shared, the area, by all human beings, and that all of them, through the proper use of their rational faculties, may somewhat imperfectly recognize the universal value of these rights and duties. This way of addressing the problem of the other is not universal. Other religious traditions approach the same problem in a different way. In Orthodox Judaism, The concept of natural law is controversial, and the issue of the legal status of the other is set in terms that differ from those I have presented. According to the Jewish doctrine, before the law of God was revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, the whole of humankind was governed by the Noah's commandments given by God to Adam and Noah. These commandments uh, prohibit blasphemy, idolatry, murder, theft and robbery, sexual misconduct, and eating a limb taken from a live animal. The seventh precept orders the establishment of courts to administer justice. On Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the law that henceforth would rule the Jews. Non-Jews should instead continue to live in accordance with the Noah's laws, reaffirmed, reaffirmed on the occasion of the Sinaitic revelation. Therefore, since the revelation to Moses, two legal systems have coexisted, the one reserved to the chosen people and the other to all human beings. And the analogy between this pattern and the one later adopted by the Christian theologians is quite evident. However, there is a significant difference. The seven Noah's commandments are revealed by God and not inscribed in the conscience of every human being at the time of creation. Although this point is a subject to endless discussions, the majority position of Orthodox Judaism affirms that the Noah's Laws rest more on revelation than on conscience or reason. Consequently, it is debated whether all the Noah's Commandments could have been understood by reason only without the help of divine revelation. In this framework, Um, the universal scope of human rights is founded on a special revealed law for the non-Jews, rather than on a a rationally knowable law common to all men. The commandments given by God to Noah, allow people to recognize full legitimacy to the presence of the other, but do not cancel the fundamental difference with God-chosen people, and do not cancel the fact that not not all people are chosen to be part of it. And this difference, in my opinion, is not negligible, However, it does not have a paralyzing effect on the ability to develop a theory of the universality of human rights, because the existence of the Noah's precepts, that is a rudimentary but basically good law that allows also the non-Jews to lead a righteous life. The existence of uh, the Noah's precept provides a sufficiently strong basis to assert the existence of a cluster of rights and duties that pertain to all human beings. The Sunni Islamic doctrine and jurisprudence addresses the same problem, the legal status of the other, in a way that is different both from the Jewish and from the Christian ones. According to some scholars, in the Islamic legal tradition, the notion of divine natural law is absorbed in that of divine revealed law to the point that I'm quoting the orthodox Islamic theology does not admit the existence of a natural law. This statement is disputed by other scholars who refer to the notion of fitra as a form of pre-revelatory natural guidance ingrained in the human personality. Uh, therefore, fitra would enable men to distinguish good from evil. However, the notion of fidra has had a scarce development in the legal speculation, that is, uh, in the legal Islamic speculation, that is uh, strongly imbued with the Asharite philosophy, according to which uh, right and wrong uh, have their only foundation in God's will. Now, to better understand this point, it's helpful to recall briefly the story of the Mutazilit theological school, which flourished between the 8th and the 9th centuries, in connection with the establishment of the Abbasid dynasty and the shift of the political center of Islam from Damascus to Baghdad. Uh, Mutatzilitz affirmed a very important principle, the ontological character of good and evil. Believing that an act is good or bad in itself, and not because God has commanded or forbidden it, opens the way to the idea that there can be universal moral principles knowable through the proper use of reasons. And these theories have some similarity with those of Thomas Aquinas, and could have laid down the foundation for the development of the notion of natural law. But after an ephemeral success, the mutazilite theories were crushed by the reaction of the Hanbali traditionalists and the triumph of the voluntaristic doctrines of al-Ashari, the founder, of the most important theological school in Sunni Islam. Al-Ash'ari does not oppose a moderate use of reason in interpreting the sacred scriptures. However, to combat mutazilite rationalism, he affirms the absolute freedom of divine will. Good and evil, Al-Shari writes, are so because God has declared that a certain act was good and another bad. But God could have stated the opposite, for example that killing and stealing were well, and then these acts would have been good." End of the quotation. Al-Ashari ideas prevailed, bringing about the decline of the mutazilite doctrine in Sunni Islam and inspiring the work of a great jurist of the 11th century, Al-Ghazali. In a work significantly entitled in the Latin uh, translation, Destructio Philosophorum, Al-Ghazali discusses the causal link between two acts and writes that, I quote Al-Ghazali, if one act follows the other, it is because God has has created them in that fashion, not because the connection in itself is necessary and indissoluble. God has the power to create the satisfaction of hunger without eating, or death without the severance of the head, or even the survival of life when the head has been cut off." End of quotation. These statements leave little room for natural law. If it all comes to divine will, it is pointless to seek in this world a rationality that is intelligible to humans. In conclusion, following this way of thinking, it is better to rely fully on revealed law and try to build a relationship with the other through roots that do not require a non-existent law of nature. Now, uh, obviously, uh, the picture is much more complex, both because Al-Ashari and Al-Ghazali doctrine cannot be reduced only to these statements, and because even after the Mutazilit's defeat, uh, we have Muslim philosophers and lawyers who rejected a voluntaristic approach to the definition of the relation between uh, divine revelation and human reason. But the most important point in my opinion, in my opinion, is that the Al-Ashari and Al-Ghazali Voluntaristic theories are not foreign to Western and Christian thought. In the 14th century, Dan Scotus and William of Ockham argued that if God is really omnipotent, he cannot be bound by anything, including his own creation. God's transcendence overcomes all human categories, Mm. and investigating nature to know God is a pointless exercise because human reason is unable to understand God who can be known only through revelation. The similarity between these ideas and those supported a few centuries earlier by al-Ash'ari and al-Ghazali is striking. To sum up, one does not have the impression of being in presence of elements that are completely absent in the philosophical and legal tradition of Islam and present only in the Christian one or vice versa. It is, instead, a matter of potentialities which have been more fully developed in one system and less in another. The terms of the philosophical and legal debate are similar. What is different is the outcome. The philosophy of Thomas Aquinas is still part of the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, And it is no coincidence that Thomas and not Dance Scotus or William of Ockham was made a saint and proclaimed a doctor of the church. In the Muslim world, an equally important role was instead played by the philosophy of al-Ash'ari. This helps to explain the relative weakness of the concept of natural law that makes it more difficult for the Islamic legal thought to address the problem of the other in the same way this problem is dealt with in the Christian West. Christian within brackets. As a consequence, In the Islamic tradition, the legal uh, treatment of the other still remains largely grounded not on the notion of equality, but on that of diversity and separateness. The other, uh, the Jew and the Christian, for example, is different and is entitled to maintain this diversity through a legal framework that gives him the right to make use of the Christian or Jewish rules concerning personal status, family law, inheritance, and so on. This is the best sense, the best meaning of the notion of dimma and of its Ottoman institutional projection, the Millet. In the Western countries where the influence of Christianity has been stronger, the concept of natural law, once it has been secularized, paved the way to the affirmation of the equality of citizens regardless of their religion which has become irrelevant with reference to the enjoyment of civil and political rights. In this perspective, in the Christian Western perspective, the others, the Jews and the Muslims, for example, can be included in the national community in terms (coughs) of substantive equality exactly because their religious affiliation has become completely irrelevant. On this point, the Jewish legal tradition is closer to the Islamic than to the Christian one. A couple of examples may be helpful to explain this statement. For For example, It is significant, in my opinion, that Israel has maintained the millet system, also much reduced in scope, that the Israeli state inherited through the British mandate from the Ottoman Empire. And as already noted, in Israeli law, there is no civil marriage, another element, that brings Israel closer to the countries with an Islamic legal background and distances Israel from the Western countries with a legal tradition influenced by Christianity. Paradoxically, a growing number of political scientists and lawyers deem that the Islamic and Jewish approach is more modern and above all, more suited to dealing with the cultural and religious transformations of the West than the Christian one. But this is another matter, and I shall not enter into it. However, Without taking into account another last element, what has been said up to now is not enough to explain why the secular state developed more fully in the countries with a Christian background than in the countries with a Jewish or Muslim one. This missing element is related to what happened in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. After the Lutheran Reformation, large regions of Europe were plagued by wars of religion that set Catholics and Protestants against each other for over a century. Wars of religion were a novelty in Europe, and they could not find a suitable place in the theoretical framework into which war had been considered up to them. The Protestant Reformation had shattered the common religious horizon of the medieval period when most Western Europeans believed in the same God and recognized the same religious authority, the Pope. Wars of religion were fought by each opponent in the name of a different god. And the pope was no longer a super partes referee, but had become the head, the leader, of one of the conflicting parties. Therefore, these wars, could not be ended by appealing to the judgment of the pope, uh, which had been possible, at least in principle, during the Middle Ages. A new way out had to be found to put an end to wars that seemed endless. Two solutions were found for this problem. One short-term and political in nature; the other long-term and philosophically oriented. The first, the short-term and political, consisted of the application of the principle of the principle cuius regio, eius et religio, which, through the forced emigration of religious minorities, Led to the creation of a religiously homogeneous confessional states. Although this solution cost considerable religious cleansing, it had the merit of putting an end to civil wars. The second solution was found by the philosophical and the long-term one, was found by Grotius and expressed with the famous saying, et si Deus non deretur. It took almost two centuries to transfer Grotius' intuition from the world of philosophical speculation to that of political action. But in the end, this principle inspired the secularization of the public institutions that took place in much of Europe during the 19th century. Uh, Grotius' proposal, therefore, requires a more detailed examination. Uh, The problem Grotius had to solve was a religiously motivated conflict. If a peaceful society had to be rebuilt, the starting point could no longer be religion, which had to be confined to one's private life. A new starting point was required, and it was found in a natural law, integrally founded on God's rationality, and therefore fully accessible to man's reason. In other words, to make a peaceful coexistence possible between Catholics and Protestants, Anglicans and Puritans, etc., politics, the law, economy, and the other areas of public life had to be secularized, placing them under the exclusive control of reason and philosophy and freeing them from the control of religion and theology. That is, these areas, politics, law, etc., of human life, had to be conceived and regulated at the Deus non directurum. The center of gravity of religion is shifted from the public to the private life. And at, at the same time, the center of gravity of a public law moved from divine law to natural law based on reason. My point is that this process, this development, was possible only because of the central place the doctrine of divine natural law had gained in Europe during the Middle Ages and early modernity. As underlined by French scholar Catherine Larriere, Grotius Exideus non deretur does not imply the negation of God. It presupposes only God's rationality. In a perfect opposition to al-ashari voluntarism, Grotius writes that, I quote, just as even God cannot cause that two times two should not make four, so God cannot cause that which is intrinsically evil be not evil. In this way, Grotius does not need to deny deny the divine origin of natural law. It is enough to affirm its accessibility to all humankind, Christian or not. It is obvious that Grotius' theory constitutes a major departure from the traditional Roman Catholic doctrine that affirms the human human inability to grasp in fullness and with certainty the content of natural law because of the original sin. And in this way, the traditional Catholic doctrine justifies the need for the church guidance in interpreting divine natural law. From this point of view, Ernst Ernst Troelsch is right in writing, I quote, that the modern secular natural law is genetically connected to Christianity. But after Grotzius and (coughs) Rufendorf, it developed in a different direction. However, Grotzius did not alter the structure of the Roman Catholic philosophical and legal discourse on natural law. The philosopher takes the place of the theologian, but it is more a substitution than a revolution. Now, the peculiarities of the concept of divine natural law that prevailed in the countries with a Jewish or Muslim religious background helps to explain why the search for an appropriate legal status of the other followed rules different from the creation of a secular state. As already said, the majority of lawyers and theologians of Orthodox Judaism consider that the Noah's commandments, to be part of the revealed law, and it is debated whether all its principles of the Noah's commandments can be discovered through rational investigation. Also, Selden and Spinoza tried to follow a path similar to Grotius, this Jewish background made the rationalization of Noah's laws and its reduction to natural law, difficult. And after 1948, it prevented the creation of a secular state in Israel. Today, the Israeli basic law on human dignity and liberty defines Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. This definition is the outcome of a political compromise between the secular and the religious currents of Zionism. But it also reflects the theological and legal background of Judaism based on two revelations. One universal to the whole of humankind, the revelation to Noah, and this is uh, uh, the foundation of the democratic principle. And the second revelation in particular to a specific people, the revelation to Moses on Mount Sinai, and this is uh, the foundation of the religious character of uh, the Israeli state. The Islamic approach to the secular state is even more problematic. Due to the strength of the voluntaristic interpretations of the relation between God's will and nature, the Christian rationalistic route is blocked. The Jewish route is impassable, too, as it requires a universal revelation that is unknown to Islam. This leaves a very narrow passage based on the interpretation of the sacred texts. The legal status of the other has to find its legitimacy directly in the Quran and the Sunnah. The attempt to attain this goal through the secularization of the state was made in the 20th century by a group of modernist Muslim thinkers largely under the influence of the Western thought that had spread in their countries during the colonial times. But their conclusions have been accepted only by a fraction of Muslim public opinion and religious authorities. As a consequence, the notion of secular state remains extraneous to main Islamic countries, where the state is clearly founded on Islamic principles, and non-Muslims, in particular Christians and Jews, have the right to live according to their personal law, provided that they accept the supremacy of the Muslim ruler. A few words of conclusion. What are the consequences which can be deduced from the analysis I have carried out up to now? In my opinion, the first and most important consequence is that it is futile to attempt to export the model of the secular state to religious and legal traditions that do not meet the conditions for understanding and accepting it. This model, the model of the secular state, is not culturally neutral. It is connected to Christian theological concepts. So it is not universal, and it is pointless to think that Born in the Christian West, the secular state can easily take root in the Muslim East. A second conclusion follows on naturally from the first. Rather uh, rather than trying risky legal transplants, it is uh, preferable for each civilization to look within its own religious and cultural tradition for the suitable tools to address the problem of the other in terms that are appropriate to contemporary society. All of the models considered in the preceding pages, exposition, including the Western and the Christian secular state, show evident limits in governing the tensions induced by the process of religious pluralization that is developing in many parts of the world. But each of these models has, in itself, the potential to meet this challenge. In the West, the solution is not to jettison the concept of a secular state. Rather, it is to initiate a reflection that allows its implementation in a way that is not hostile to religion. In Israel and in the Muslim countries, the problem is not to give up their model of state, but within it, to guarantee freedom and equality to people who do not profess the Jewish and Muslim religion. These are different roads, but all are acceptable, in my opinion, if they converge on the common goal of ensuring religious freedom, which is a fundamental right of every human person. Thanks. That's all I have to say.